Well, good morning, church family. Uh, I'm Arthur Anderson. I'm a deacon here at Calvary Bible Church. And for our scripture reading uh, this morning, we're going to read from the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth uh, selected um, passages. I'm using the New American Standard Version, 1995 edition. And I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Uh, Ruth 1, 19 through 22. So Ruth and Naomi both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, excuse me, make the women, make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar, born to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Allow me to just share with the verse, and then we will jump into Ruth this morning. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. For if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that we would love you and love one another and love people. Give us a heart for people. And not just a heart for ourselves. Lord, may that be a lesson for all of us in this Christmas season as we are just in a season that we remember you, in a season where tensions can be high, Lord, I pray that we would just set ourselves aside and we would set out to love one another and love people. And Lord, that's what I pray this morning. I pray this morning your word would go forth and it would change our lives. Uh, May we just appreciate who you are. And may we worship and may we glorify and may we live for the God that you are. And Lord, may we proclaim it with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, but if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to stay in the book of Ruth this morning. Today we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit. We'll be looking at a little bit in chapter 1, some in chapter 2, and then some in chapter 4. Uh, but today we're looking at the main character in the book. That's our goal. That's what we try to zoom in on today. If you do not know, the last five weeks, we were in our fifth week of a five-week series looking at the book of Ruth, and we decided to use this short book to usher in the Christmas season, 
And we did it for two main reasons. The first reason why we used the book of Ruth to usher in the Christmas season is because the book, like Christmas, is a story of redemption. But then also, number two, this book is the reason why Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And if you're wondering how that is so, I'm glad you asked. Luke chapter 2. If you can flip there if you want to. Luke chapter 2 is really the Christmas narrative that we see in the New Testament. And this is what it says. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of all the known world. God used this man named Caesar Augustus to fulfill Micah 5.2 and to be sure that Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem. It's pretty amazing. That a census be taken of the whole inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Verse 4 of Luke 2. Joseph also went up to register for the census. He went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family of David. Wait a second. Where did David come from? He is, his great-grandfather is a man named Boaz, who is from the town of Bethlehem. So because Ruth and Naomi crossed the Jordan back to the town of Bethlehem, and because Boaz did the right thing, marrying Ruth, producing on her behalf an heir of the land of Malon and Kilion, which we've talked about for the last few weeks, because of all that, they had a son named Obed, who is the grandfather of David, Joseph is from the line of David, therefore he returns to his hometown and is born in a little town called Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5.2 and ushering the Christmas season. So I don't know if any of y'all caught any of that, but there you go. Uh, so that's the reason why Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But if you've been here for the last few weeks, the first week we were here, we really just talked about the story. And then a few weeks ago we looked at a woman named Naomi. Her name means delight or pleasant, but she changes it, as we read, to Mara, which means bitter. But her life is the picture of a picture of a servant of God. We see that in her grandson's name, Obed. Her life is full of ups and downs, but she hangs on to faith. We saw Ruth a couple of weeks ago. Her name means friend or companion. She turns out to be a true friend or companion to Naomi. And then we saw a man named Boaz. His name means quick or fleetness to be nimble, and he is a tool in the hands of God. And today, we look at the main character. Who is the main character in the book of Ruth? Who's the character I did not mention? Some of us think of Orpah or the elders in chapter 4, but the main character that we see in this book is the one that is invisible is the one that is the puppet master, the one that is arranging the events of this story for redemptive purposes. The main character is who? It is God. And what do we learn about God from this book? Let me just ask you the question, and I would like you to answer back if you would, if you feel up for it on a cold morning. Um, we'll warm you up this way, okay? So what, what words, what thoughts come to mind when you think about God. So what words, nouns, verbs, whatever, I don't even know my parts of speech this morning, but what words come to mind when you think of God? Faithful, good. Yeah, good. What else? Almighty, good. Holy? Love, good. For God is love, First John. What else do you, what else comes to mind? Truth. 
What else? Anybody bold? So, any more bold? So you have, what I see is four different thoughts come to my mind when I think of God. First, I think of his names. What are some of the names of God? You have Elohim, you have Yahweh, you have El Roy, El Elyon, El Shaddai. I also think of his attributes. I think that he is sovereign, that he is omnipotent, that he is omnipresent. I think of his nature, that he is triune, right? But then when I think about God and when I think specifically about the book of Ruth, I think about his thoughts towards me, his thoughts towards us. That he forgives us, that he loves us, that he works all things out for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. I think about his promises, that I am a child of God, I have an inheritance, I have eternal life, I have the ability to have an earthly abundant life. I think about his spirit that isn't dwelt within me, that I'm supposed to walk according to the spirit. I think about all these things. But the question I have today is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe deep down that the same God in here is the same God out here? I know what you're saying in the back of your mind. Of course, right? <laughs> okay. Yes, but let me ask you the question again. Do you really believe that the same God we see in the Bible is the same God here today? Because I think if we really embraced that, I think our lives would change in immeasurable ways. That if we truly saw God in here, and the God we see in here is the God that we live and experience every single day, that our lives would be totally different. But the question is, who is he? Who is God according to the scripture? Who is God according to the book of Ruth? So we have your scripture, look at it with me. I'm just going to kind of quickly go through the chapters just to kind of set the stage for our discussion this morning. I'm not trying to be pedantic. I don't know if that word works here. Um, but I'm not trying to just be monotonous, but I'm trying to set the stage for our discussion when we come into the different chapters of the book of Ruth. So let's just look at it from a 30,000 foot view. Where are we when we come into chapter 1, what happens? We introduce a man named Elimelech and his wife named Naomi, and they have two kids, Malon and Killian, which means weak and sickly. Her husband's name, Elimelech, means my God is king. They move to the land of Moab across the Jordan River to the east, and there what happens? Naomi, and all the promise of her life. She has a husband, she has two sons, her two sons marry a woman named Ruth, and another one marries a woman named Orpah, one means neck and one means friend. And then what happens across the river? Her husband dies. Ten years later, her two sons die. So here Naomi is, a Jew living in the land of Moab. She decides to move back to the west part, to west of the Jordan River, and there she returns her homeland in Bethlehem. And her relatives notice her in chapter 1. And what do they say is, can this truly be Naomi? What does she say in chapter 1? Don't call me delights. Call me bitter and angry. Anybody else want to change your name to better sometimes? Okay, just preaching there this morning. Okay, chapter 2, what happens? Ruth clings to Naomi in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Ruth decides to take it upon herself to provide for Naomi, so she goes to the fields to glean, fulfilling the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what does she run across? She runs across a man named Boaz, her distant relative. His name means quickness or fleetness. 
And then he invites her to glean in his fields because he's a man of great wealth. Then what happens in chapter 3, the climax, the scandalous nature of this story, right? That Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, encourages Ruth to sneak down to Boaz in the middle of the night after he's had a glass of wine and some food and to lay beside him, right? And to ask Boaz to be what? Her kinsman redeemer. And then in chapter 4, Chapter 3, Boaz, at the climax of the story, agrees to be the kinsman redeemer, to redeem the name of Malon and Kilion, to pass on their land to their descendants. And then in chapter 4, what happens? Boaz confronts the closest relative on the city gates in front of the elders. And what does he do? He, of course, the closest relative says, oh yeah, I'll redeem her, I'll marry Ruth, and I'll get her land. And they both, <laughs> time out. Actually, you have to buy the land and then give it to Malon and Kilion's descendants. And he's like, well, I don't really want to mess up my money. I'll let you mess up your money. Okay. So then he retracts his offer. And then Boaz decides to marry Ruth. And they have a son on Ruth's behalf named Obed who inherits the land of Malon and Kilion carrying on the name in the town of Bethlehem. But who is God in all of that? What do we see God is. Notice chapter 1 of Ruth chapter 1, noticing verse 12. So Naomi is about to return from the land of Moab to the land of Israel. She is angry. She hasn't quite crossed the Jordan River yet. She turns to her two daughter-in-laws, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. And what does she do? She pushes them away and says, don't return with me. I have nothing to offer you. Go back to the land of Moab. Go back to your family. Go back to your gods. And this is what she says, return my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Why she said she has no more kinsman redeemer. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they have, until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the, notice this next word, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth from against me. What does she call God? She calls him two things. I mentioned this when we were talking about Naomi. Number one, she calls him Lord, which is the name Yahweh. She also calls him Shaddai. So Yahweh reveals his character and Shaddai reveals his power. Let me say that again. Yahweh reveals his character. We can go more into that. And Shaddai reveals his character, excuse me, his power. So God is Lord, God is Yahweh, it reveals who he is. Who is he? He is the one true God, he is I am who I am, he is above the gods of the land of Moab, he is the God we're searching for. When she says Lord here, what does she mean? She means that God is a God that keeps his promises. But then notice in verse 20, what else does she call him? Do not call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord, Yahweh, has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She calls him Lord. To Let me just say this. And, um, okay. Breathe, Byron. Okay, moving on. So I, I, um, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, okay? Um, by talking about the name Yahweh, just to be completely honest with you, I talk about it quite often because, quite frankly, it's everywhere in the text. Um, 
And I hear Harvey Chang right now, if you remember him, man, miss him. He would say, Byron, it's not a dead horse, okay? That's what he would say from the back, okay? It's not a dead horse. Let's just talk about it. Yahweh is the name, the name of God. It means I am who I am, and it reveals his character. But to a Jew, to Naomi, who grew up in Bethlehem, who knows the law, what does it tell her? That he is the God that keeps his promises. That all of the promises given to the nation of Israel since Genesis chapter 12 and on, that all of those God will fulfill. Let me just ask you a question. Um, Do you believe the God in here is the same God out here? Do you believe that God truly keeps his promises? Do you believe the text in Romans 8 Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, Revelation 21, that all of the promises of God will come true. Let me just say something. I think if we really did, and maybe I'm speaking out of my own personal paradigm here, okay? So if we truly believe that God is Yahweh, He's a God that keeps His promises, I think our lives would be a little bit different. I think we would be bolder, that we would trust Him all the more. Because we know who he truly is. The one true God is Yahweh. That he is outside of space, time, and matter, arranging the events of history to fulfill his will. I mean, just look at history as a whole. Look at the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2. God uses a pagan heathen emperor to fulfill his will. To the day in the fullness of time, as it says in Galatians. God brought forth his son. God is Yahweh. He's the God that keeps his promises. But what guarantees that God keeps his promises? So we see his character in Yahweh, but then we see his power in the word Shaddai. Notice up here, what does it say again? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You notice here, this word Almighty is the word Shaddai which means to be powerful or to be in control. The reason God can keep his promises is because not only is he Yahweh, but he's also Shaddai. He is sovereign over all the world. Um, my Hebrew is a little bit rusty these days. If um, You don't need to know that. Anyways, moving on. But... Uh, there's, a, there's somebody that goes to church here who is more of a Hebrew person than I am. He's actually in seminary right now, and he's teaching Old Testament survey next quarter. So you should take his class, and his name is Noah Fowler. Anyways, moving on. So I asked him, I said, now, Noah, what does this word Shaddai really entail? And this is what he said. Shaddai is a clear picture of the Almighty, often used to show how great God is. Some scholars talk about it in light of false gods or mankind, which presents a more clear picture of how mighty God is. The illustration is like this, that you can look at a postcard of Mount Everest, and it is accurate representation of its grandeur, but standing at the foot of Mount Everest and looking up at the grandeur in light of yourself communicates a might that a postcard cannot portray. The might of God, Shaddai, is often set against the backdrop of false gods in human efforts to better show how almighty he truly is. So only when we look at false gods, only when we look at ourselves, can we truly understand how great and how powerful almighty God is. God is Shaddai. 
If God were only Shaddai, if God were only all-powerful and did not have the character of Yahweh, then our God would be Allah, who is controlled by his will. If God were only Yahweh and not Shaddai as well, it would be outside of my mind that he may not be able to keep his promises. But these two work perfectly together. That he is the almighty I am who I am, that there is no true God above him, that he is sovereign over all the world. And the Christmas season itself proves that he is sovereign. That he would use a heathen to bring forth Joseph to Bethlehem, Mary to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and bring forth the Son of God, Jesus, in the town that is predicted in Micah 5 too. That he is all-powerful and that his character is sound. Both what she says work together. Um, do you believe the same God in here is the same God out here? Because when I thought about Shaddai and I thought about Yahweh and I thought about how these two really work together, how one reveals his character and one reveals his power and how those two work perfectly together to guarantee all of the promises of God, I thought about this. You know, the volitional side of me says, well, if God truly is Shaddai and he is truly Yahweh, then what? Then I can trust him. I can trust him. You know, what does that mean? That means we can worry less. Amen? Anybody else worried in the room? Okay? This is where worry caused my hair to fall out. Okay? That's what happens, okay, when you're stressed out all the time. Okay? I can worry less. I can enjoy more. I can know who he is. That he makes promises and he can keep them. But as I thought about this text, another name of God came to my mind that is not in the text, but I felt like it's fitting. That God is also El Roy. That he is the God who sees. Elroy is first used by Hagar in Genesis chapter 16. And God sees Hagar's plight. And what I see about the book of Ruth is that God sees Naomi. Naomi is angry. Her name is bitter. Mara. She feels that God has abandoned her. That God is AWOL, absent without leave. She feels alone going back to the land of Bethlehem. Um, when you're at the bottom, what is the first thing to go? Does God truly love me? Is God truly with me? Has he abandoned me? Is he good? I was, um, officiating a wedding this last weekend or this last week and, um, Somebody came up to me who goes to church here and was talking about the book of Ruth. Now, you, you, you know you're a preacher that when you talk about your sermons as you live, okay? Pastor Gary used to do that with me, okay? He used to talk about his sermons at lunch all the time. So I was officiating this wedding this last weekend, and I just shared an observation about the text, that there is a correlation between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So one of the things in English... Chapter divisions are helpful, but they can also hinder you. We sometimes make too much of a big deal with chapter divisions. Because think about the original text. It was written on, like, leather, like lambskin or something. Okay, y'all can correct me after the after service today on what it actually was written on. But you think about the original text. It was just a bunch of 
words without spaces, punctuation. It was a English teacher's nightmare. It was one giant run-on sentence. If you actually look at Hebrew, there are basically no periods. It's just a bunch of conjunctions joining everything together. Anyways, moving on. Okay, you didn't need to know that. But if you look at the original language, there are no chapter visions. There are no verses. They were added way later. So if you look at the end of chapter 1, what happens? Naomi is angry. She is bitter. She feels like the Lord has abandoned her. She still hangs on to her faith because she knows that God is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the God of character. He's the God that keeps his promises. And he's also Shaddai, that he is almighty, that he is sovereign. She still believes that God can keep his promises to her. But she feels what? She feels totally abandoned. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Verse 13. For I went out empty, or I went out full, and I returned empty. The end of chapter 1. That's how she feels. But if you notice in your text, chapter 2. So just take the chapter division. Just, just take it out and put it to the side for just a second. And just read the text. Okay, verse 20. So Naomi said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? But then notice, verses 1 through 3, Naomi talks to Ruth, but then what does the other character introduced in chapter 2 say? Naomi feels abandoned by the Lord. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his workers, what? May what? The Lord be with you. I think God is using Boaz in this text to remind Naomi, to remind Ruth, and to remind us today that even though we may feel that God is absent, that God has abandoned us, that God is distant, that God, yes, he might be of good character and almighty, but he doesn't care. But what she says is this. The lesson I see from the life of Naomi is that God, who is Yahweh and Shaddai, is near to her. May the Lord be with you. I, I don't think it's coincidence that at the very peak of Naomi's anger at the end of chapter 1, that Boaz says exactly what he does at the beginning of chapter 2. He's reminding her, he's reminding us that you might feel that God is nowhere. Uh, can I ask you a question? You don't have to raise your hand to this because it's, it's cool. Um, have you ever felt like God is a wall, absent without leave? If you, if you have, that makes you normal, okay? But I don't see that. God is near. And what, if you have your text, go to the end of chapter 2. It's interesting. No, Naomi's at the bottom at the end of chapter 1. May the Lord be with you. Boaz says that he is near. But then Naomi says this at the end of chapter 2, verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law Ruth, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living, to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The, Lord, the man is our relative. He is our closest one of our closest relatives. Wait a second. Okay, go back. May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness. What is she doing there? She said at the end of chapter 1 that God has completely abandoned her. His hand went out against her. Here he's saying what? May the Lord 
The Lord is back. May he be blessed of the Lord. Is not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. She is beginning to see the faithfulness of God through this story. So what do we see? That God, who is Yahweh Shaddai, is near. Psalm 34, verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So that's what I see from Naomi's perspective, what we see of God. But then what do we learn about God from Ruth's perspective? Chapter 2, verse 11. I want you to, this is going to be um, a little controversial, but I'll explain it here in just a moment. Verse 11, Boaz replied to Ruth, so she is in the field. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. But watch this. Verse 12. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be made full from the Lord, the God of Israel, on whose wings you have come to seek refuge. God, who is Yahweh and Shaddai, rewards Let's go back. Wait a second. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. So wait a second. Does God reward you for righteous living? Can I just speak a little bit in conservative church circles? We focus a lot more on the condemnation of God than the grace of God. Would you agree with that? We focus more on the shame I feel, the forgiveness of sins, confessing my sins, all that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, we should talk. But let's also, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Who is God according to Ruth? God is Yahweh Shaddai, is near and rewards. But is that true? Is it true? That God rewards you for faithfulness. Um, we can I just let me just say something real quick. We don't believe in karma here, okay? Karma is what that I get what I deserve. Okay, you track it with me. Now, some Christians believe that, but that's called the prosperity gospel. That if I do this, then therefore God is obligated to do this, this, and this. We don't believe in karma. And praise the Lord, we don't believe in karma, correct? Because if we believed in karma, then we'd be burning in hell forever. That's just the way it is. That we get what we deserve. Actually, if you're a Christian, you don't. Amen? That's the gospel. That Christ, God sent forth His Son on Christmas Day to live a perfect life and to be sacrificed on a cross to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sin. We do not believe in karma, but does God recompense? Does God reward us if we live a righteous life? Does God even care? What does the scripture say? Psalm 31, verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The, word, the Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. James 4, 6. But he gives grace, greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
What does Boaz say to Ruth? May you be what? Rewarded for what you have done for your mother-in-law. And, but not him. May the Lord reward you. Can I just speak to all you? Um, one of the things that I love about this church in particular, can I just brag on you a little bit? And I mean this. We have very faithful people. Man, um, some of you have been working with Awana for literally longer than I've been alive. Um, some of you have come to church here for 60 years almost and faithfully served and faithfully given and faithfully ser- you know, honored the Lord. If you can do, say one thing about Calvary Bible, there's a lot of things, but one thing you say is that the people are very faithful. But friends, do not be deceived. The Lord notices and I believe the text says that he will punish us for our sin, but he will also reward us for our righteousness. How does God reward Ruth? You know? If Boaz says, may you be rewarded from God for what you have done for your mother-in-law named Naomi... How does God reward Ruth? Chapter 4, verse 11. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord Yahweh, who is character, who keeps his promises, make the woman who is coming into your home. He's talking to Boaz about Ruth. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Who is he talking about? This is the mothers of the 12 sons of Jacob, really some of them. Okay, we won't get into all that. Both of whom built the house of Israel. May you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Let me ask you a question, and I want you to raise your hand to this. Before today, how many of you have heard of Rachel and Leah? Okay, okay. Y'all saw hands. This is proof that God rewards Ruth. Before this sermon series, how many of you have heard of Ruth? There you go. Did this come true? Did it come true? This, verse 11. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Guess what the hands raised just now did? It proved something. It proved what? That God rewarded her for her righteousness, for her godliness, for being faithful to a woman named bitter or angry. It's proof that hands are evidence that 3,000 years later, and halfway around the world, we're talking about this woman and this man named Boaz. Her name became great. It's proof. That God, who is Yahweh and Shaddai, is near and rewards. But do you really believe that? You know? That's the question I have. Do you really believe that the God that we see in the scriptures is the God in reality? I'm going to move on to my application, and I'm going to give you two recommendations today. Now that this is the last week of the book of Ruth, I think it's a good time to just kind of recap this book in just in application form. Number one, I would encourage you today, and this this week, is to choose a character that you relate to. Choose a character that you best relate to in your current status of life. 
Number one, some of you are Naomi, you know, like you just been through the ringer lately. You just, you, you had it. You've done. You feel like the Lord has been completely absent. He hasn't answered prayers. He has been nowhere to be found, but you still have a little bit of faith because otherwise why are you probably here this morning, okay? You still have a little bit of faith. Maybe you're Naomi, but to you, the Lord is near. May the Lord be with you. He is near. So seek him. Sometimes in my quiet times, my relationship with the Lord, when I feel that God is distant, I feel like he's waiting for me to find him. That sounds strange, but it's just kind of the truth. What does it say in Psalm 55, verse 22? Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He would never allow the righteous to be shaken. So some of you are Naomi. Number two, some of you are would probably pick Ruth out of this story. That maybe you have a Naomi in your life that's just struggling. And you really have been serving and helping them. And you need to remember that the Lord rewards. He recompenses the proud doer. I would encourage you to keep on keeping on. But number three, if I'm honest with you, I think probably most of us are number three. Most of us are Boaz. Because if you think about life... The seasons of being a Naomi are small. You go through seasons of difficulty, right? And then they kind of go into peace. And everything's okay. And everything's fine. I can pay my bills on time. You know, my hair is no longer falling out. I don't know. Things are cool. Like, things are great. In those seasons, be Boaz. Lord, I got, I got margin. I got some margin, I'm good, my health's good, I got money in the bank, I'm happy, right? Where do you need me to be? Where do you need me to go? That's a Boaz. If your life is going okay, you know, if you don't have somebody's life who's falling apart around you, don't don't worry about being a Ruth, don't worry about being a Naomi, don't find something to gripe about, okay? But be a Boaz. You know, my life's pretty good, you know? Look for people around you that need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that need you to be a Boaz, that need you to be a tool in the hands of God, that you need to be a person of righteousness, see a need, and then meet that need. But then, so that's what I want you to do. I'd I'd encourage you to pick a character that you would like to be that fits your time of life and then act like them accordingly. But then my main application for you today is one of self-examination. Um, I was teaching hermeneutics this quarter, and uh, we talked about application quite literally today. So maybe that's why mine is longer than normal. Okay. I'm trying to practice what I preach, I guess. Um, and one of the problems with application is that it is inherently personal. You know, a point... That God, who is Yahweh and Shaddai, is near and rewards. That is, an, that is a timeless principle that can apply to anybody in the world. But application is inherently personal. It's a decision that we have to make as individuals. So my question for you is this. Do you truly believe that the same God that you read about in the Bible, 
is the same God in reality. Do you believe that the God in the Bible is the same God in reality? Because the God I see in the Bible is Yahweh. His character, he keeps his promises to me. He is Shaddai. He is one of power and sovereignty. And he is near to the brokenhearted and he rewards the righteous for the way they live. So what should that do in my life? Trust. Trust. That I should trust the Lord. Because he is good. And he is in control. He's got it. Chill out. (laughs) Anybody else can relate to that up here? Chill out. Trust me. I got it. You know, if if, if God was standing here in in form, okay, physical form, first off, I'd be um, hallucinating. But moving on. Okay. Maybe not. Okay. Anyways, moving on. So if God were standing here, and he were talking to Byron Bradshaw here today, he'd say, Byron, just chill out. Worry less. Enjoy more. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about about what other people do. Worry about loving me and loving others. And that's my question. Do we truly see God in here as the God that is in reality? And I'll close with three statements. Because if we did, then we would let go of worry for he is near. We would do the right thing for he rewards. And we would trust him because he is Yahweh and Shaddai. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Just thank you for the many blessings of life that you've given to us. Um, Lord, I mean, we worship the true God. The one who is above all gods, above all the earth, who holds the universe in the hollow of his hand or marks up the heavens by the span. We worship the God who is sovereign, who sent his son to demonstrate his love for us. And we celebrate that on Christmas. And Lord, may we just truly trust you. Truly believe that the God we see in the Bible is the God in reality. And Lord, may we be people that are lights to the world. May we be the salt of the earth. May we be the light of the world. Lord, I just um, pray for those that do not know you as Savior, for those that think I'm speaking Chinese, or for those that, you know, maybe have studied the Bible their whole life, but have never been born again. Uh, Those, Lord, I'm praying for right now, that you would open their eyes to see the truth, that they have to come to you and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be changed. I pray for those that do not know where they stand with you, that they would have an honest and sincere conversation with you in prayer. And Lord, they would come before you and they would receive your son. And uh, we thank you for today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing. Protect those that are out of town or sick today. There are many. Just be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.